0: Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with Dr. Elliot Jacobson, who I would call a genius. He probably would be more humble than that. But in all of my conversations with him, uh, he is just an extraordinary, extraordinary wealth of knowledge. He's a retired professor of mathematics and computer science at UCSB. And this really got a huge uh, volume of work that a lot of people are familiar with. But today, I want to dive right in, Elliot, and talk to you about what happened this week. You released a chart related to climate change. You are a, a world-renowned climate change expert. And you released this chart that got coverage in the LA Times, in Forbes, other places, talking about um, ocean temperature. So can we... Just go right there, Elliot. What's going on? What did you find? What does it mean?
1: So a moment of backstory here. Uh, I've been compulsively collecting data that's available from online sources. I just, I, for years and years, I just wake up at ungodly early hours, like 4 a.m., and just actually go to the database and copy and paste the day's data Um, into a spreadsheet. I have a bunch of spreadsheets and I've created macros and different ways of displaying things. And I do this. And whenever something interesting appears, I post it to my Twitter account with some sort of um, explanation of what it is. And I've been doing that. That's pretty much been what my Twitter account has been for all these years, right? And so what happened on the, um, I believe it was the 10th of June, just four days ago, was I posted what I thought was a very interesting um, explanation of an anomaly in North Atlantic sea surface temperatures. I am actually going to share my screen and bring this one up uh, just so that we can see it. So this is what I posted. And I, you know, I posted it with just my typical language, like, like, This is something that that needs to be noticed, needs to be talked about. It's unusual, you know, trying to trying to kind of generate a little bit of action behind it because I never know what's going to get noticed to not. Right. So I posted this on the uh, morning of um, June 10th, about 8 a.m., which is when the data comes in. And by the morning of June 11th, it had one point two million views. Right. By the afternoon of June 11th, I was getting calls and uh, emails from media internationally. I think the first one came in was from Fishing Today magazine, asking me to write an expert opinion about what these temperature gains would mean for uh, North Atlantic fishermen, which I politely declined. Um, But then a very smart journalist from the UK uh, contacted me and I spoke to him, and then the LA Times contacted me, and uh, CBS Chicago contacted me, and, you know, it went on and on. Um, So let me just explain what this chart is so that people can actually understand it. What I've done here is to look at the average sea uh, surface temperature from 1982 to uh, 2023. So that's one number, is that average sea surface temperature. Um, But that's not what's plotted here. What's plotted here horizontally is the difference in temperature of every single day from that average. So every year from 82 to 23 is indicated by a horizontal line, one of these squiggly blue lines that is the day-to-day anomaly for that year. The lighter shades tend to be more recent years. The darker shades are, are back in the 80s and 90s. And you can see how Temperatures have sort of gradually increased over that time. And then there's this year, 2023, in red. And what we see here is that over a period of just a few days, I mean, literally less than a week, these temperatures went almost vertically and kind of came completely out of the blue. It caught a lot of people off guard. And I was the one who put this image up and nobody else was really noticing these things until this image. And and they were flat-footed, right? The world community, all the climate scientists are like, what is that, right? And so that's kind of how it all started. And I can talk more about what it means and what some of the possible explanations for this are uh, and so on. But, uh, you know, just as a basics, this is the thing right here. This actually went on, uh, Good Morning UK, right? It was a (laughs) <laughs> you know, with Illustrated from the morning show, and they actually attributed it to the University of Maine, which is pretty, you know, funny. But um any rate, here it is. And, uh, yeah, hopefully that'll get people started. I'm going to come back to full screen with you, Josh.
0: Okay. So you have this following. You have a Twitter following. You have something like 23,000 followers. 36,000. Wow. It's, it's, it's keeps going up. All right. (laughs) So, so you have this really large Twitter following, probably one of the largest right here in uh, Santa Barbara. So you have a, a lot of credibility with what you say and the research that you do. And you put this out, you know, we have all sorts of climate scientists, some locally who get lots of attention. And here you are doing the original research and presenting it. So tell us, why? Why is this happening? I know that's a huge question, (laughs) maybe not to you, but why are the temperatures increasing at such a rapid rate? Now, we know that has been happening, but as you pointed out, it was almost a vertical line. So what is going on? So what I really appreciated
1: about what happened in the aftermath of posting this was how many World famous climate scientists almost immediately chimed in with reasons that contradicted each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like one guy would say this, and the other would say, "Oh, it's not that; it's this." And and you, you don't expect that to happen, right? You don't expect them to honestly have no idea why this happened. Um, there are at a combination of causes, in my opinion, that have sort of all come together at once. Um, there are, you know, there's the ongoing um, anthropogenic heating due to, uh, due to greenhouse gases. And what that is doing is it's heating up the oceans, right? Sort of in general, it's heating up the oceans. We might, you know, that's a long term heating that's continuing to go on and the oceans are continuing to heat. It's not a spike. Um, but that heat is there, ready to be released, and that's worth remembering. Um, and then there are these sort of transient effects. We have El Nino just beginning, right? Just just last week, El Nino started, and we can already see direct heating, at least, off of the eastern equatorial Pacific, you know, owing to that. And um, there is this other phenomenon that w- that we're very late in the season. Usually, this time of year, there are dust storms that blow westward from the Sahara. Over the Atlantic and sort of the the uh, southern uh, regions of, of the North Atlantic, um, and those dust storms block incoming solar uh, radiation, right? And since those dust storms are late, you know, all of that solar radiation is making it down to the ocean to heat the surface waters. So that's another possibility, and the third possibility um, is one that. Uh, some people believe may be the major cause, but is probably being the most hotly debated new topic, which oddly was not covered by the IPCC, um, which is the effect of a brand new shipping fuel regulation, so called IMO 2020, International Maritime Organization 2020 policy, that reduced sulfur the maximum sulfur content of shipping fuels from 3.5 percent down to 0.5 percent. This reduction is huge. Shipping fuels were the dirtiest fuels on the planet, right? You could see their trails from outer space. It's like, like imagine diesel trucks we used to see in the 70s, you know, pouring pouring out smoke. I mean, that's what these things are. And now suddenly their fuels are clean. Now, now why is, does that make a difference? Well, um, it turns out that the emissions from these uh, ships that when they were using the dirty fuels contained a lot of sulfate aerosols. And sulfate aerosols in particular um, reflect incoming solar radiation. So sulfate aerosols bounce off all of that pollution and go out back into space, right? And so now we have these uh, cleaner shipping fuels. And so suddenly we have all of the solar radiation hitting the planet. Now, why now, right? Why now are we seeing the effect of something that's been going on for three years? And the answer to that, I believe, has a lot to do with La Nina, right? The fact that a lot of the heat was being suppressed actively by La Nina. But if you actually look at, like, where is the heating taking place on the planet that is generating this? It is El Nino regions, it's Saharan dust regions, it's shipping global shipping pathways from uh east asia to the united states from the united states to uh europe the uk and the middle east right those are the pathways where you see a lot of heating so and you know then we just have some atmospheric things happening too that are all sort of conspiring at the same time so it's a hodgepodge of things right and that's what the scientists are trying to work out right now is you know how how much of this and how much of that has actually gone into the mix, right?
0: So you are what's known in this field as a doomer, right? Yes, you, you embrace that term. That is not absolutely. a pejorative term from, it's from a your pejorative. perspective. <laughs> no way. Um, so let's talk about that because this issue is polarizing. Uh, there are those who absolutely deny that climate change is real it's a small percentage but it is a vocal percentage uh there are those who believe we need to do absolutely everything we can to save the earth there's still time uh there's people who are kind of indifferent just living their lives in the middle recycling you know trying to be responsible but it doesn't dominate their life but there's you who is a doomer who I'll let you explain it. But as I understand it, you sort of feel like there's no hope at this point of fixing it. So talk to me about what that means. Oh, You know, I just want to
1: go to that word hope. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't use the word hope, you can't get an article published in mainstream media, right? You can't (laughs) write a book. You can't um, become a public speaker on the top of climate change without the word hope. As I'm sure your uh, educated listener base knows, um, hope is the one evil that Pandora didn't release. Right when uh, she opened the box, right, it was the last evil that was put in the box. And if you actually look at the etymology of the hope as described by Pandora, you know, in that in, in the myth, the word has been translated into the word hope the modern word hope but a more careful translation would be deceptive expectation right so what is the evil deceiving to create expectations so we're living in a world of unlimited growth where our paradigm is growth right where we talk about growth of income or or um, growth of families, or our, we're going to get a better job, a nicer house, uh, more stuff, right? We're going to uh, grow the economy, grow our savings account. Everything is about growth, right? The population is, of course, growing. Whereas, the, you know, the reality is that the planet is not capable of sustaining growth, right? So we live, we live in the paradigm, the cult of unlimited growth. And that is the deceptive expectation. So when somebody uses that word hope, right? That is saying, we hope that we can maintain this completely failed paradigm of unlimited growth, right? And that someone will come along and do something to let us do that. Whether that thing is, you know, transition to electric vehicles and solar and wind, uh, whether it's to get this or that political party elected you know, or persecute this or that a politician, whatever it is, right? Everything is focused around the, this uh, paradigm, this, this hoax, right? That we can have unlimited growth. So a doomer is someone who rejects hope, rejects um, the concept of deceptive expectation and replaces it with realistic expectation right? The opposite of hope is not hopelessness. The opposite of hope is not fear or inaction. The opposite of somebody who has hope for our future is somebody who has realistic expectations, right? And so that's what I consider myself as a doomer. I simply consider myself as somebody who has realistic expectations about what's going to happen to
0: the planet going forward. So if you're a doomer, right, why are we doing all this stuff? Uh, why, why? Why did I go to Earth Day Festival? Uh, why did I uh, work with my daughter to, uh, you know, sketch a few things at one of the tables to paint a rock, to uh, write a letter to uh, stop these shipping companies from from hurting the whales? Uh, why? Why does my wife yell at me when I don't recycle or I put she it? She never in the yells
1: at you. She's you no. Know.
0: No, no, not at all. Uh, when I when I don't put the things, you know, in the in the proper bin, um, you know, wh- wh- why are people driving Teslas? Why are people driving electric cars? Uh, what is that good? Is it just not? It, it, there's no point at this time. Talk to me about what we see day to day in this this culture of if you're not environmentally responsible, particularly in California, then. You're part of the problem. Can you talk about that? Well, that's a huge umbrella of topics to
1: talk about. Um, So on the topic of what should we do, right, which is a piece of that, um, what I heard you say is that why should I do this human thing? And why should I do this human thing? And this thing that benefits humans and that thing that benefits humans. So As a doomer, I am an activist. I am an absolute 100% activist. And what is my activism? It's to preserve whatever I can of this planet for whatever is coming next. And there's sort of a famous saying, if I can preserve uh, the life of one more butterfly for one more day, I've done enough. I look to the natural world. I look at what I can do uh, as an activist to save the natural world. I don't look to what I can do to save humanity. You know, by and by the way, things like Teslas and electric vehicles, aside from you know, the the weight, the sheer physical weight of these vehicles compared to modern um uh gasoline-driven engines, we're also talking about the mining issues, right, of lithium and cobalt, um, and the recycling issues for these alternative, you know, um blades from from um, wind power only last um, a couple of decades right solar panels we have mass graveyards yards for this debris. So all of that stuff you're describing falls under the heading of a bright green lie a bright green lie And the bright green lie is that if we can um, if if we can simply do X y and z then we can continue to grow right So let's all do X y and Z what that lie involves is not understanding that it's we aren't looking at our greenhouse gas footprint right as humans we should be looking at our ecological footprint what is our total destruction of the environment by the choices we make and it is i am hard pressed to say that getting an, an ev is less environmentally damaging you know between um Child labor being used to do the the lithium mining, right, and all the other things I've outlined, I'm I'm really hard pressed to say that 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 in any way is a positive for the environment. And so, I mean, what a doomer recognizes is essentially there is no way out, right? There is no solution. I'm not going to say, oh, if only we build more nuclear plants, if only we drive EVs, if only, right? No, no way out. There there is absolutely no way out. Um, there was a great study, uh, I forget the date, but it came out of Harvard. And it actually, uh, the study showed that people with hope actually were uh, less motivated to be activists than people without hope. And the logic is kind of easy to understand. If you have hope, then you believe the problem can be solved, right? And if you believe the problem can be solved by humans, then you believe somebody solving it. And you don't have to do that, right? You, you can just say, oh, we can solve this problem. Surely somebody doing that. I'm going to go, you know, drive my Tesla to the mall and shop for, uh, a, you know, a new outfit I'll wear one time. Um, so this, this sort of idea that hope motivates action has been proven false, right? And in fact, it's the doomers, it's the doomers who are activists. Right? Because we understand what's happening to this planet. And and we truly, honestly, are doing everything we can to preserve it, not for humanity. We don't care about humanity. You know, humanity's on the way out. We are a failed species. We're we're saving it for whatever comes next, but we're we're doing it consciously and
0: actively. So a couple points there, but let me start. Let me go back to your your chart and your research. When you publish this. And it goes viral, you know, almost 3 million different shares or or views or whatever that term was. And you have international media paying attention and you have climate scientists paying attention. As a Doomer, what is your goal? So when you share this, what is your hope? What what are you trying to accomplish by sharing this original research with your audience? I... Um,
1: I've been a lifelong educator and, um, it's gotten me in trouble many times because I often share things that people don't want shared, right? I, I just look at data and if something is interesting to me, I publish it and give it away, right? This is interesting to me. I'm publishing and giving this away. This is what my Twitter feed is. When I was in the casino world, I spent three and a half years just writing articles and publishing them and giving them away, never charging for it. So different people have different reactions to this, right? I can't control an individual's reaction. I cannot tell you my intention with this picture is, right? To wake people up, to get them to see where we're going. Because, look, it's already fallen out of the news stream, right, uh, two days later. It's, it, people have forgotten about this. Um, I have a, um, a community, right, on Twitter that is very environmentally conscious who looks to me for um, updates sort of at the edge of what's happening right now on the planet. You know, they look to me, tell, tell me the latest thing. And, you know, to that community, I will put up a chart of Arctic sea ice, for example, which I put this one up today, you know, showing the same red line, only this time with respect to global Antarctic sea ice extent, which, which actually in a statistical basis is more of an outlier than the North Atlantic Sea surface temperatures.
0: Wow.
1: Or I'll put up a chart of global temperatures, right? We're talking about breaking the 1.5 C barrier. I'll put up a chart showing our global temperatures and you can see the red line in the middle right there. And so I'm constantly putting these things up. And hopefully um, one of the consequences of this is that it forces the climate scientists, right? Those people who, who get quoted like Michael Mann or who is that local person, Leah Stokes, right? These people who get quoted in the media as experts, as policy experts who get invited to do, um, you know, keynote speeches at major conventions who get who get awards for their work. Those people are going to get these questions, right? You know, how come you didn't know about this? <laughs> how come this caught you by surprise? Um, what is this about? Why did it happen, right? So it, it's so funny to me, Josh, that as just a... An ordinary guy sitting in his garage here in Santa Barbara, right? I am posting this stuff and it's catching, you know, climate scientists worldwide flat footed. That is as crazy to me, right? I mean, why aren't they, why didn't this come out from them, right? Why did it have to come out from me? Um, and I will tell you the answer to that. It's that I am not a climate scientist. And if I were, I would have to worry about my career. What my colleagues thought about me. If I were to put out something that was fringe, would I get, you know, disinvited from conventions or have hard harder time getting my grants? If I was to, you know, lead with with the sort of um, most anomalous of anomalies, rather than just sort of sticking to um, peer reviewed research and have that be me, you know, what would be the consequence to my career? And so. There are built in biases to academia. And I had that, I had firsthand experience of that as a mathematician. When I was a math professor studying abstract nonsense, right, in Ohio, and we would hire another math professor whose specialty was some other abstract nonsense. You know, we would have discussions about how well his abstract nonsense would fit into the overall, you know, mix of, of nonsense in our department when I say abstract nonsense, you have to understand that PhD mathematicians produce nothing of value other than deepening theories that have no um, applications whatsoever or even intrinsic value. So I understand the pressures of academia to sort of stay in this, this focal point. And I mean, you may have that experience as well as a journalist, uh, you know, professor to feel like um, you know, you have to stick to sort of main channels of, of what journalism is. And there's all these other ideas now. Uh, journalism has become such a huge, huge, you know, thing now, right? And it, its definition has gotten so much larger than it used to be. So, so at any rate, um, I probably rambled a bit too long, but maybe that that's an explanation.
0: Now th- there are definitely similarities in terms of what, people in the real world and how they experience journalism versus some of the legacy ways that we we teach it. Um, I wanted to, you know, it's so fascinating because you are a doomer. And when I hear you talk, you I mean, you just say flat out, uh, you're concerned about what happens next, okay? Not necessarily for humanity, but for uh, this earth right? This planet, ecology-wise. And so that is what you're concerned about. How do you explain? Because I can imagine a climate scientist who is paid by somebody or who works for a university saying, Elliot, people are going to twist what you're saying and use it as a reason to not do anything at a time when we make a lot of money off of all of this effort and politicians make a lot or you know they have a lot of success based off of you know being an environmentalist how do you sort of explain to somebody who says seeing look Dr. Jacobson says there's no hope so why should I care about climate change what would you say to that so
1: Michael Mann, again, this professor, uh, climate scientist professor argues that doomers are worse than climate deniers. So, you know, he, he, he looks at people who deny climate change and the impact they have, right? Then he looks at doomers and, you know, maybe there's 12 of us who have some sort of, you know, public presence in this country. And he says, we're worse than the deniers because we are, we are motivating inaction. And I argue over and over for action, right? So so the question is not, you know, how is somebody going to twist my words? Because that's not in my control. The question is, what are my words, right? And my words over and over and over involve action, environmental action. So um, people are, it's out of my control that people want to twist that um, and, I don't fight against it. I mean, honestly, there are so many um, people who are willing to twist things to mean other things these days that that's, that's a downhill battle. Um, I battle um, armies of trolls in my Twitter feed. Um, There are, there are agencies out there who um, are funded to Troll climate science and you know COVID and other things, right? By the by the thousands, they'll just come up and and fill your feed with with their memes, whatever they've been instructed to do that day. Um, so you know the battle that that I face is not one of credibility or voice or um, you know what I'm saying. The future is the battle I'm having is a trench war with um, industrial uh, grade, you know, um, military grade trolls that that come after me. And uh, until you've experienced that, right? You don't really know what that is. Maybe you have experienced, I don't know what your comments in your channel gets. Um, you know, I, I have people who just uh, say simply, quote, kill yourself, you know, and that's their tweet to me, you know? If you think that humans are so bad, why don't you just lead by example? And just kill yourself. Um, so, you know, I, it just doesn't seem like, like it's the most important issue that people say, oh, I can do anything. And then they just go and do anything because it doesn't really matter to a large extent what they do anyway. Um, I mean, the end result is going to be the same. Yes, I would prefer people... See, I'm conflicted about all green technology, so I don't want to go tell people to, um, you know, use solar or wind, right? I certainly don't want to advocate for biomass and cutting down baths of, you know, swarms, forests of trees to you know, power the um, electricity of Germany, right? So, I mean, there's so many things that I wouldn't advocate to begin with that fall under green technology, so if someone says, oh, because of Jacobson, I'm not going to go green, that might be the best choice, <laughs> you know, anyway, at this point. Um, you know, one of the things that I do around Santa Barbara is I walk along. I, you know, I, I'm sure many of your audience have seen me out walking. I, I walk hundreds of miles a month. I'm, I'm out, uh, you know, uh, six days a week walking four five, six miles around town. I do most of my shopping by walking, right? I I go to places that I, I to meet people by walking. Um, that's better than a car, right? That's better than a bicycle. It, it's it's you know I love Nick. If Nick started walking, uh, <laughs> Nick Welsh, right? Our our favorite bicycle. Guy. Nick's
0: on a first name basis. We we yeah. Love Nick.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean he loves bicycles. I I would rather argue for for walking. Um, So, you know, there are ways that we can um, reduce our footprint. Or, I mean, walking is increasing your footprint, but you get what I mean. (laughs) And in ways that are just. um, So what I was saying about Santa Barbara is when I walk to go shopping, right, when I walk to go shopping, I walk to the store, I fill up a bag, I put it in a backpack, I maybe carry a couple bags by hand, I walk home. How many other people do I see out walking to go shopping, right, on a typical walk? I mean, look around Santa Barbara. The next time you're out driving around Santa Barbara, see how many people are walking to a store and carrying their groceries home, even though that store might be right across the street from their neighborhood, right? Even though it's a quarter of a mile away. How many walkers do we have? This is one of the most walkable towns uh, in California. It's mostly flat there's stores everywhere to provide what we want, right? Um, there's sidewalks, there's there's stoplights. I mean, you could walk anywhere here, and yet people don't. You know, how many people ride their bike to go shopping? Very, very few, right? What do most Santa Barbarans do when they want to go shopping? They drive there, right? And that that's exactly it. We are an environmentally conscious city, and And that's what we do. I mean, it it is such there is such hypocrisy in this city when we call ourselves environmentalists. You know, if you're an environmentalist, show it. All right. You don't need to get home to watch that basketball game. Right. You don't need to be driving your kid to some event. You know, you can show it by your actions on the street every single day. And. And you know, that's that's part of my activism right there is this this um minimizing, you know, all contact with with devices that um uh you know actively harm the
0: environment. So a couple of things there and, and, and I'm really learning a lot a lot from you on this topic is you mentioned bikes. Is it I mean, are you saying environmentally, it's better to walk than to ride a a, a pedal bike? Not, a, not I, a-
1: uh, I was specifically thinking of these new electric bicycles, right? Which which have uh, not only the uh, lithium, you know, for the batteries, but also just the physical danger they pose to pedestrians like me. So exactly. so yeah, I I actually appreciate it now when I see somebody riding an ordinary pedal bike. But I'm telling you, those are getting pretty rare.
0: Right. And so, you know, we have this electric bike craze, uh, you know, Santa Barbara's embraced it, but they're popular everywhere. Um, solar panels, obviously, you know, and you've touched upon this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about why, when you look at the balance of using these types of energy sources, why you wouldn't recommend them? Because, I mean, it's such a counter to what so many people have been told for decades, which is solar, wind, electric, help save the planet, every little bit helps. What's happening, you know, you mentioned child labor for for some of the, you know, what is going on on that end that we as uh, just sort of a, a sustainable planet need to know about?
1: Well, I would just, I would like to direct your viewers uh, to two documentaries that that explain this um, fairly well. The first is called Planet of the Humans, and that is a Michael Moore documentary. And the second is called Bright Green Lies, and that is, um, among other people, a man named Derek Jensen um, was involved in making that. And both of these videos go into length about the environmental damage Caused by these alternative technologies, you know, you go out into the desert and suddenly there are acres, square kilometers, right, covered with uh, solar panels or with um, these new focus, these light focusing devices that are, are you know, like they have on the the way to Las Vegas now. You know, we are we are killing massive, destroying massive parts of our up till now untapped uh, federal lands. To um, install these alternative technologies at scale, um, we there simply is not the capacity to put a solar panel on your roof and say, "Okay, now I'm I'm solar." Right. Well, what do you do when the sun goes out? Uh, what do you do at night? What do you do if you don't have a twenty thousand dollar lithium backup system from you know Tesla? You know. What do you do then? Well, you need to be able to access a power grid. Well, how is that power grid getting its power? Well, it's burning coal. All right. Well, all right. Can we just say it's night? Let's just turn on the power plant. It's like, no, you cannot just ramp up and ramp down power plants. Right. This is not something where you can just say, Oh, let's turn it on now because we need it. You actually have to keep the power plants um, running. Um, uh, ready to back up. So you're, you're not really turning these things off, right? Just because you have the solar panel. Meanwhile, the electric transmission line, you might look into this, right? Nationally, as more and more people start generating rooftop solar and more solar projects go in, how do we get that electricity from point A to point B? You know, it's one of the sort of jokes in California. I, I have some connections up high into sort of the California, um, um, development, alternative energy development uh, framework. And one of the jokes among them is that is that, you know, we're creating all this um, new electricity, but we don't have the capacity to carry it, right? The actual lines, the wires, uh, and you can find stories on that, how far behind, like, like that infrastructure has to come first before we build out our solar panels and our wind and everything else. We need to upgrade all these lines and that's not happening. So we're going to have everybody you know, with their home system with nowhere to put that electricity and then still needing coal at night or nuclear or whatever the source is. So, I mean, there's so many things wrong with it. And and those are just, you know, you've got to just look at the pictures of what a lithium mine looks like. You know, one of the great sources of lithium apparently is the seafloor, right? Uh, areas of the seafloor. You start looking at what we are, already in the process of working towards, with raking, scraping, you know, mining vast areas of our ocean floors for lithium. I mean, we are going beyond any notion of of what environmentalism means when we say that green technologies are part of the environmental movement. The whole idea of environmentalism was to protect the environment, and it has been... um, you know, it, it, it's it been corrupted by this new uh, idea that if only we create new energy sources, then that'll help us save the environment because those new will replace the old. Well, there's something else, it's called Javon's paradox. And what Javon's paradox says is that, um, and this dates back to coal use in the 1800s in England. All of a sudden they're using coal. They have all this extra energy, right? they figured everybody's lives were going to get a lot better because they had all this extra energy. And what they quickly realized is that the more energy we produce, the more each of us uses, the more you know, we find ways to use it. We don't replace old energy with new energy. We use new energy for new things, right? So the idea that we're creating all this new energy and somehow that's going to replace old energy. And on top of that, on top of all of this, new energy demand. Right? The demand for new energy is actually um, outstripping even our ability to create um, alternative energy sources. Right, So it's not just like alternative energy will replace fossil. It's like alternative energy is barely keeping up with new energy demand. And just as an example, um, in the UK just last week, um, they had a heat wave. Um, It wouldn't feel like a heat wave to us mid-80s, but to them it was. And they didn't have enough electricity. They had to fire up old coal plants to start Mm. generating electricity to meet the demand from the air conditioners. And that's called the doom loop, the doom loop. The idea of a doom loop is that as we create worse and worse conditions, we need to consume more and more energy to be able to even mitigate the increasingly worse conditions, right? So we are now in the situation where more and more energy is needed just to keep conditions, human survivable in places. So that's where all this new energy, at least some of it is going as well. Have I made your day yet, Josh?
0: (laughs) Hey, I'm going to drive my kid to, I'm going to go pick up, I'm going to drive to pick up my kid at camp at four o'clock and I will be thinking about you when I do that. No doubt. Yeah. I have two more things. um, Yeah. Elliot is people who don't know you may get a perception that you're kind of, uh, you know, if you're a doomer, you're kind of a down kind of a guy, you know, not very excited about things or life, but I know the opposite from knowing you a little bit. And so one of the things I, I saw that you had mentioned is about you sort of feel one of the things that you Enjoy doing is being of service being of service to other people, so can you just talk a second about how you can have these really big views on the the planet and that there's essentially no hope um for people, but there is maybe you know you're concerned about what comes next for the planet, but yet you're extraordinarily nice person of service who who helps people all the time who volunteers in the community so can you sort of tie all that together and how you can be the doomer, but also this ray of light to people in your your life? So, so I I don't think you fully appreciate the word doomer yet. I think
1: you still <laughs> hold that with some dark darkness, right? And if you hold that phrase in the right way, you yourself will be a proud doomer in no time. I, I may be um, one without knowing it. Yes, you may very well. So. I have sort of this this three um prong philosophy that I, I talk about and live my life by. And that three prongs is kindness, generosity, and service, right? So um generosity just means to whatever extent you have abundance, and it's different for each of us, right? Find ways of giving it to causes you believe in. You know, give it away, give stuff away, right? We are at the end of civilization. It's time to start giving stuff away. And so, you know, I don't want anybody to put themselves in the poorhouse, uh, poor but, but that's the direction that I move, uh, you know, and that's why I give my research away, right? People have for a long time said, oh, you could charge for that. No, I give everything away. Um, the um, second thing is service. And for me, that's pretty much my life, right? And I was for a, t- a while, I was one of the volunteers in police. I was a docent for the elephants at the Santa Barbara Zoo. Uh, Last summer, I helped out when they had the uh, Pelican emergency. I I helped out for about a month at the Wildlife Care Network. Um, And I am currently uh, co-chair for the um, Planned Parenthood book sale, the annual book sale that happens at Earl Warren every year in September. Um, I feel personally, when I talk about activism, there is no higher activism than service. Service means you are doing something with your eyes looking out, you're not asking for what's coming back to you, you're asking for how you can give, right? So when I talk about activism, that is what I mean as as service is part of that activism, right? service is um, part of uh, just my framework for um, preserving what I can for whatever comes next and you know there are some causes that i'm better at than others um i found it very hard to work around um pelicans i have allergies and you know it's not my my style um but you know this is the same thing my wife has exactly the same philosophy that we both try and live lives of service and give it away and that is just it's a way of conducting yourself um through what are arguably the hardest times humanity has ever faced in its in collective history on this planet, you know, and what's to come, um, and and just the third thing is kindness. Um, I mostly uh, fail at that. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think over and over again of uh, you know times I could have been kind and I wasn't kind. So that's more of an aspirational thing, right? Um, and it's just something that I keep reminding myself over and over again that I want to live my life and uh, with with kindness, kindness towards other people, kindness towards all beings, towards all life. Um, so for me, that's the kind of uh, philosophical structure that holds it all together for me.
0: Well, I guess my last question is, and you'll you'll laugh at this, but I am. It is a literal question. How much time do humans have left on this planet?
1: So I thought that was going to be your first question.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, um, I buried the lead, but I, you know, with a good journalism story, you start with something great <laughs> and end with something great. So
1: you get sure two right, right. There's a lot of stuff. That, so I'll tell people, I'll say, listen to the last three minutes of uh of the pod. So um, so how how much time do we have left? So there's there's two things going on right now. Um, from the Doomer perspective. One is the collapse of global industrial civilization and the other is the sixth grade extinction, right? So right now um, the background extinction rate is somewhere between a hundred and a thousand times sort of the long-term normal rate of extinctions of species on this planet. So species are quickly going extinct um, all over the planet. Humans are a species, whether we do or don't go extinct I can't say, right? When you talk about the collapse of global industrial civilization, um, that is a a prediction that people like to make, you know? And, and a fellow named Michael Rupert, who is sort of a famous collapsitarian, um, thought the 2008 uh, financial crisis was the beginning of the collapse of global industrial civilization. And, you know, there's another doomer out there who thinks that it's gonna happen by the end of 2025. Um, the way I see it is, it just depends on where you live. So, if you happen to live in the Horn of Africa right now, it's happened, right? You have six years of drought and massive famine. If you happen to live in Pakistan right now, in those areas that where they had thirty million people flooded out last year, you know, effectively your civilization that for that whole region of the world uh, is struggling and has to relocate. So, so the first thing that's going to happen is we're gonna have massive climate migrations, right? People moving away from areas that have been decimated, that have collapsed. And so that's what, what we will see, right? And as we see these massive migrations, we'll see people trying to close borders, which was you know, what, what Brexit was all about, was closing borders, right? And it's what, of course, our previous president was all about. Um, who shall go nameless for me? <laughs> has uh, was all about too closing borders, and there's a lot of these sort of uh, you know nationalist agendas going on in countries around the world because you know people are trying to escape from parts of the country that are collapsing. And right now in Puerto Rico, you know we had we had a week of temperatures close to 120. There was a temperature in northeast India recently where the temperature plus humidity index you know how hot it real really feels was 140 degrees 140 is not survivable right there's something called wet bulb temperatures wet bulb temperature if you take a temperature of 95 degrees fahrenheit with 100% humidity that's unsurvivable that that's death for a human 95 with 100% there's a whole scale from there of temperature and humidity right so as parts of the planet start getting to these wet bulb conditions they will collapse by force right they they will become unsurvivable and then we're going to have unsurvivability due to lack of water or fires like paradise or lit- in canada right or we're going to have um, you know the entire forests of, of boreal forests of siberia and canada burn up which by the way is going to is just getting started this summer so So, when you talk about when, my answer is always, it's already happening. It's nice to live in Santa Barbara, isn't
0: it? You know? Yes. So, do you predict sort of a a chaos, um, uh, a total, you know, sort of dinosaur thing um, happening? You mean mean
1: like dogs and cats living together?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, mass migration, people going to climates that are still sustainable. Yes. Essentially, those aren't sustainable and, yes and you I mean you predict a uh, I mean people are gonna what starve that I mean yes. what is the end of this is that what you're saying or um, I'm
1: not really good at painting scenarios for the future but what I have done on my my own blog which if I can drop a name here is climatecasino.net So if you go to climatecasino.net, and you look for all the stories. And since, um, since you asked, I'm actually going to find this right here. And I, I may sure. be running over your, your allocated time, but I'm, I'm pretty fast at finding this stuff. So, um, if we, if I show you this right now. Sure. Then this is, um, what I, I list as the 40 consequences of climate change, this article on my blog on Climate Casino, the top 40 impacts of climate change. And I have references to these, you know, the ones that seem more obscure, but this gives you a sense for what's coming, right? It's not one thing or another. It's all of this stuff. You will get whatever your local location happens to be, you know, most inclined to, like we got, you know, the rainstorms in January, or we got the Thomas fire, right? And, you know, who knows what this fire season will bring if it ever comes because of this, this rainy weather, which, by the way, is another consequence that this unusual weather, even my tomatoes won't grow because of this. They're getting all moldy in this weather. So um, anyway, so this is just something to um, look at that maybe we could give your um, viewers a sense of the answer to that question. What do I see happening? Right. I mean at least those 40 I have a longer list of 77 things that that I think are going to happen.
0: Right. And and this week uh Elliot how many media sources have you ta- have you talked to how many calls have you fielded? Um well I I I turned down a
1: um keynote in Bangladesh. Oh no in Pakistan in Pakistan. Yeah, right. I I turned down a keynote there. So
0: Wow. Well, I think
1: a a few, I I don't know. It's, you know, I think what happens is that people look at my stuff and then they look at my credentials and they say, okay, he's a math professor, right. But we really need a climate scientist. And a couple of times I have pointed these media sources to other people like that, who I I think share my perspective and understanding, but have more credibility. Um, And, you know, one of them in particular is a, a man named Leon Simons, who is a, a climatologist from the Netherlands, who I've I've uh, sent quite a few people to. Um, so, yeah, um, maybe 20 would be a safe guess for how many have contacted me. And, you know, the stories they've written have gone uh, international.
0: You you refer them to people who practice opium, I imagine. Yes.
1: Uh, I don't, think so but maybe a little bit yeah
0: well uh, dr elliot jacobson i appreciate you taking time to explain all of this and offer your perspective and offer us a window into this really expert smart analysis of what's happening with our our planet and uh thank you for taking time to to be on the show and um, i look forward to talking to you again soon
1: Thank you, Josh. This has been a real pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you.